Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Kevin McKenzie, Artistic Director of the American Ballet Theater. As he is widely known around the world and has garnered many prizes and awards from his tremendous body of work as a performer, a choreographer, and an artistic director, I will offer a spare introduction in the interest of asking some particular matters about his leadership, shifts in the culture of ballet, where the art form is heading, along with reminding folks of the performances staged at the Sigerstrom Performing Arts Center in nearby Costa Mesa. To introduce him then briefly, Kevin McKenzie was a leading dancer with both the Joffrey Ballet and the National Ballet of Washington before joining American Ballet Theater as a soloist in March of 1979. He was appointed a principal dancer the following December and danced with the company until 1991. In September of 1989, he was appointed a permanent guest artist with the Washington Ballet and in 1991 assumed the position of artistic associate. He's also acted as associate director and choreographer with Martine Van Hamel's New Amsterdam Ballet. Kevin McKenzie was then appointed artistic director of American Ballet Theater in October 1992, where he's been these last 30 years and is making this a swan song of sorts, pardon the pun. As I said, he's received many awards. I will not name them all. He is very, very available, accessible, abundant searches, but I just want to conclude the introduction with he's a founding board member of the Katzbahn International Dance Center in Tivoli, New York. And as it's a tradition to name the education for all of my stellar guests, he received his ballet training at the Washington School of Ballet. He comes today from Orange County, where he's overlooking the performance of the Nutcracker at the Performing Arts Center. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kevin McKenzie. Wonderful. It's so good to be here. First, congratulations on a phenomenal achievement of steering an internationally influential and revered ballet institution, American Ballet Theater. It's, it's the long view of your career that I'm really, really interested in exploring with you today. I guess I'd like to start with, over this time, the arc of the dancers' careers over your time with ABT has there been a change in how dancers have been, how their talent has developed, how their bodies have maintained, how body types have changed as well? You know, yeah, it's really interesting. When you talk about the overview, in my career as a dancer and as a director, I've just always been so busy doing what I'm doing. I never really stopped to look backwards. I just kept moving forwards. So it wasn't until I stopped dancing that I took a look backwards over my career. And now that I'm wrapping up this second career, I'm for the first time taking a look backwards and reassessing. And it is remarkable how dancers have changed. They've changed mainly. Great dancers love to be in the presence of other great dancers. So they learn from one another at least as much, if not more than their mentors or the people in the front of the room, helping them, coaching them, guiding them, whatever. And there's something uh, physical that has happened that I think might have been fed by the, the honing of technical training, not unlike Olympic performers. 
uh, you know, every time you watch the Olympics, every four years, the records just keep getting broken, you know, steadily on a steady given pace. Uh, think back to when we first saw Olga Corbett and how amazing that was. Mm. And now look at what's going on uh, in women's gymnastics. And you go like, wow, that looks like an old black and white movie. I, I, I would joke and say, is it in the water? I mean, it's not just that the physicality is refined. There, there seems to be two things that stand out to me. Stamina. They have far more stamina than I think we had when we were in my generation when we were dancing. And they have flexibility to the point where it's almost too much. You, you know, it's like they're missing ligaments or something. You know, <laughs> they have power and stretch, which gives their physical instrument an enormous range of expressiveness. But I think the thing that is the most standout that evolves for me is is their knowledge of their instrument. I mean, when we were dancing, we were it was just we want to dance, you know, and you had aches and your pains and you push through them and you, you know, unless you had a bone sticking out of your leg, you 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 know, you could make it. It was based on your pain tolerance. Today they they have such advanced physical therapy and they they can kind of predict you know what's going on like a biologist you know they can name the muscle that is inflamed so they can and they adjust how they work to preserve it so the scientific part of the art that is connected to the athleticism has really changed and it services them to be able to uh i don't know be kind of superhuman from my point of view and they can survive a, their career well then with the kind of attentive therapeutic, occupational um, yeah. attention made to, to their bodies. Right. Because, you know, they have they have a much bigger support system granted than they did when in, when I was dancing. But they also have, as important, they have a self-knowledge of how their mm -hmm. system works, you know. And, you know, the days of the dancer, you know, sitting in the hallway smoking a cigarette, you know, those, <laughs> that's a pretty rare sight these days. Um, they tend to do you know, what our mothers all told us, you know, you're, you're, you know, get plenty of rest and drink lots of water and eat regular meals. And <laughs> they just lay, they take care of themselves because ultimately that's what it takes for a really talented dancer to have a long career. You know, I always have defined the definition of talent as uh, the ability to realize your gifts. You can be incredibly gifted and, you know, that's, that isn't up to the individual. That's just the gifts you were handed down at birth. But if you don't have the talent to realize them, you're going to go nowhere. And one of the th things that I remember so vividly of a mentor of mine, when I finished my training, she said, you know, I know you want to go to ballet theater. That's that would been your dream. And that's how you've been trained. You've been, you know, we've honed you to be that kind of dancer. But you're all of 18 years old. You've just come home, you've won a medal, you're full of yourself, and basically you would dance if nobody paid you a penny to do it. So now you're going to get a job, and somebody's going to start paying you, and you're 18, your hormones are raging, and you, you know, you're going to be on your own, for really, for the first time. Stay here in town, go to the National Ballet of Washington, and figure out how to live your life to support your habit, <laughs> instead of develop habits that will stop you from accessing your the life you want. And it was the best advice I ever got. So 
I carried that with me when I became a director that, you know, you can come across these amazing talents when they're really young, but you do have to be careful that they're really young and that they should be doing age appropriate work. There is this panic instilled in dancers that the career is so short that you've got to get everything really quickly. You've got to be, you know, hit the big time by the time you're 22 or it's all over. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. You know, I can tell you from experience, I didn't do my first full length classical work of Petty Bob until I was 28 years old. I was capable of doing one at 22, but I wasn't really prepared. I wasn't emotionally and I didn't know myself well enough to, to do it. Because the worst thing that can happen to a dancer, and more so in this age where we've got the internet and everybody knows everything about everybody, um, is try to provide them with a support system or a an environment that helps them understand that it's important for them to develop as, as an artist before they become a star. Because they're growing up today in a society where you need to become a star first and foremost, and then we'll fill in the details. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Well, thank you so much for that. And such a, an important kind of way to lead all of these artistic professionals. So another kind of a long view question over your career at ABT is when you assume this leadership role 30 years ago, AIDS was the scourge of many performing artists and patrons of those arts could you contrast for us the effect of that scourge compared to the scourge of COVID on performers and audiences? Well, it's a different kind of scourge, obviously. I mean, we we lost, you know, I'll tell you a quick antidote. I had some little honor that I got a few years ago. And I, I uh, they asked, could I invite, uh, you know, friends, associates, dancers from ABT to attend and, and and whatnot and you know i um my family is lives very very far away from where this award was happening and um so i i thought the most convenient thing is the dancers i had access to the dancers so i invited some dancers to come and uh they got to the award they got all dressed up you know and they were like well where are your friends where you know <laughs> and and i kind of had to stop you know like the friends that you grew up with dancing and that's when i kind of had to portray that notion that well you know i'm most of the people i dance with in my generation aren't here anymore and you know that's of course because of the aids crisis so the world was robbed from a lot of voices that could have really contributed and maybe slightly changed the story and the arc of this art form in a, in a different way mm. uh, uh, but with covid it wasn't a silencing um it was surviving. It was, uh, I'll never forget that few months between February and April of, of uh, 20, when, uh, you know, the unthinkable happened that we had to like, cancel our Metropole opera season. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one quarter of our performing opportunities for the, the entire year. And then like a month later, cancer our fall season and all the tours and whatnot. And I thought, my God, we're performing art. You know, this whole generation could turn into a lost generation. But what happened? You know, mother, the necessities, the mother of invention. And we all got down to, you know, how do we need to be creating work? We need, you know, dancers uh, and creators only evolve by doing their, practicing their craft. And 
because you know the only thing that was good about for me and I you know I have I don't get me started on social media and, and all that it's a I, I find it personally a destructive thing for society but uh it, in this case it was the thing that saved everybody because we were able to huddle down and create works in bubbles in absolute bubbles we found locations around the country for dancers to literally be isolated from the outside entirely they lived together, they worked in a studio and created new work. Food was delivered from the outside. They never saw another human being. And we did them in five-week pods mm -hmm. where people created works and then we filmed them. So people discovered talents they didn't know they had. Certain dancers, you know, started to come in, you know, started to get interested in filmmaking. Others just reinforced how much, you know, and having the ability to perform live taken away from them, how important it was to them. And they, like everybody during COVID, it was an inflection point. They had to reevaluate why they were doing and what they were doing and what they expected of what they were doing for fulfillment in their life. And so although the AIDS crisis took many people away from us, the COVID crisis indeed did take people away from us, but in the artistic community, we became the healing. We, you mm -hmm. know, it was our job to start the healing. Uh, we were the respite for the world, so we had a job. Whereas with the AIDS crisis, the job was saying goodbye to people. It was it was processing grief. Not that the COVID crisis wasn't all about grief, but it it. It bonded and banded uh, the artistic community together to survive no matter what. And for that, we audiences all over the world, thank you for that, because that was very much a nurturing in our isolation that you, you all reached us. And I can think of your company as well as other companies. If you just joined us, my guest is Kevin McKenzie, Artistic Director of American Ballet Theater, stepping down at the end of this year after 30 years. So many cultural institutions like the Metropolitan Opera have had to navigate complicated connections with Russia. How, Kevin McKenzie, have you managed that, thinking now of your choreographer, Alexei Radmansky, and his affiliations around Ukraine and Russia? Well, it's been a remarkable journey for him. It's and and for all of us, you know, I mean, ultimately we have to draw the line. That it's it's not Russian artists' fault that they have, uh, you know, that they are led by a state that is disrupting the world in the way that it is. Uh, we've seen around the world many Russian artists fleeing Russia, but Alexei stands in a very unique position because he is Ukrainian, but he has had much of his professional career in Russia. And I think it's not unknown that he was making not one, but two huge projects, one on the Mariinsky Theater and one on the Bolshoi at the time the war broke out. And he within, you know, like a 24-hour period just said, that's it, I'm canceling these and I'm leaving the country and I'm not coming back until that man is gone. That's a pretty bold statement. And he made uh, it very public. I mean, canceling a run is a very, a production is a very big thing, but he made, he underlined it with bold fonts. Yeah. And it has had, uh, you know, deep personal, uh, mm -hmm. you know, his family's still in Kiev, you know, I mean, it's torturous for him. So what is he doing? He's using his art form to, uh, 
make a statement uh, for the Ukrainians uh, that we just will not, you know, you're not going to make us lose our identity. And he's put together a, to keep adding to his schedule, he's still working with us and he's still creating works around countries around in Europe, but he will not work in Russia. And But in addition to the other work that he does, he put together a group of Ukrainian refugees mm. and started staging ballets and presenting them to the public. And uh, it's a labor of love of his, but it's also a focus that I think he has, it's a renewed pride in his identity, uh, you know, of who he is and where he comes from. But not unlike COVID, an artist turns to their art. Art is a reflection of the times in which we live. And we as an institution at American Valley Theater, you know, what can we do beyond as basically the world does, you know, it's, it's who, who's going to endorse this action of Russia, really? But is it our business to get into it? No, our business is to heal with our art. And we will just continue to do that as will Alexei. Thank you for that. So as Susan Jaffe assumes the role of the new director of American Ballet Theater, I'd like for you, Kevin McKenzie, to describe for us how different the baton was that you picked up 30 years ago from yes. the baton that you're handing off to her. And I'm thinking all over the map, the changes in the cultural reference points like the Nutcracker and in other ballets, how, how think representation in the kinds of performers that join ABT and all of the things that Susan Jaffe's going to assume as the new director, what that baton looks like from what yeah. you assumed. Well, you know, basically what I assumed was a place in pretty much shambles, um, like virtually no finances. And, you know, it was a, it was a mess, uh, but it was a very different company. You know, I, I mean, at the time I joined, there was no education department. You know, there was basically a, you know, a couple people in a press department and maybe 10 people in a development department and a general manager and a, you know, that's it. <laughs> um, we have a, we're a much different company now. And we have, although I can't boast that we're, you know, the most financially secure institution in America, um, we have our feet firmly on the ground and did in fact start programs to counter the narrative that, you know, ballet is elitist and, you know, white supremacist and all that, like a decade ago. So we are well on our way. Have we, we've got a long way to go, but we're well on our way culturally thinking. I, I mean, years ago, when the, the, the many stories about why are there no black ballerinas and, and mm -hmm. it's only white people in, in big ballet companies. I kept saying, you know, the thing is, the general public, you can't just go find somebody and put them in place. You have to train them. It takes 10 years to make and train an artist that was capable enough, both technically and artistically, to get to the age of 18 to compete, to get the audition for a company like ABT. So it's not a matter of us hiring the wrong people, quote unquote. It's a matter of finding a way to get access to people who are not in, in a position to get the training. It's about access. So we started a program, I don't know, 12 years ago, it's called Project Plie, to literally scout out talent 
students of color uh, that had talent and give them access to really good training through our national training curriculum and a teacher training system that teaches ballet at a there's two types of schools in my estimation. There's what we call the competition school. And then there's a, sort of more of a conservatory approach. And I wanted to take more of a conservatory approach so that students of all races, greeds, colors, and, and economic backgrounds could get access to that wonderful journey that I had, which was you just discovered that this was something you, the joy of dancing, the joy of expressing and moving to music. And that's all you need. That's the, that's the hook on the line. You get them hooked with that and then they want more. And then you start to train them in a more strict way, but you don't give them, you know, like the top role, you know, the, it, what, what bothers me so much is to see a young girl or a young guy doing like, black swan potida at 12 years old you know that's just mm. not age appropriate material for them so we designed a system of training and and indeed 10 years later we are now seeing more applications from dancers of color that are trained well enough to come into our school that we can train them and now we're starting to see the demographics of our company change and it wasn't much of a shift really because abt started that way i mean we when we were founded we were a very international company. I think really what it is, is uh, what Susan is inheriting are the intricacies now of the battle that's going on in society. You know, the in all honesty, there's a fringe on the left as, as well as a fringe on the right in the terms of how we should be culturally treating one another and what the expectations of that are. But be that as it may, it's real, it's here. And so we're all learning a new language about how to not be talking about what, how we're treating each other with disrespect, but respectfully embrace one another and focus on our art. And Susan is enormously well-equipped for that. So that, you know, she's, she's inheriting something that has the beginnings and uh, the machinery is kind of in place, if not perfectly oiled, but what she has I don't mean to apply that, you know, she's got it easier than I do because exponentially, I think it's going to be harder. It's a bigger company than, than I did. It's not as simple to just say, make it so, you know, because there's only three people that you have to get to, to, to put something in motion. It's a big organization, but she, she's of it. It formed her. She, it was, it's as much of her identity as it was mine. Um, we had so many shared artistic experiences and, most of those came from ballet theater. So the rest is really societal changes that we need to incorporate into the company that we have started that journey already. And I think she's more versed in it than I am. So I think ultimately she's inherited a heavy lift, but she's more equipped to succeed in it, I think, than I am. Wow. So the audience development, there's a, a lot of layers to audience development. And I'm thinking partly of we had on our midterm election on California's statewide ballot, a proposition to support arts education K through 12. So I wanna know if there's a role that art education throughout the country is a part of building your audience and building your art form, besides what you're talking about in developing like the Jacqueline Kenyon Nassis and the other conservatory approach to training mm -hmm. your dancers early on. 
You know, um, I you touch on a thing that's very, um, don't get me started. Uh, I always use this phrase, shame on us as a country that we bought into the notion in the 80s that arts and education was not really all that important for us as a society. We needed to put our money elsewhere. And here we are. There, you know, it's it was left up to the artistic institutions to educate the public, quote unquote, to develop their own audience. Well, you know, a ballet company or a symphony or an opera company is not in the business of educating the populace, but we had to get into it. And enormous amount of resources, of human resources, to, to do that. I applaud this law in California, and it should be. I mean, the value of one of the ills of our present day society is not only the lack of arts education in the public school system, it is the lack of education, period. There is, there are, you know, the fact that we have a generation of young adults that can't identify where a state in the United States lies on the map, forget a country in Europe or in Asia, is shameful. It's just plain shameful. So, you know, until, you know, the artistic institutions can only do so much. They can't educate the entire country. We are not the government. So, yeah. And, you know, you get the government you uh, deserve. And you get the results of that. So it seems like a public education exposure to cultural arts are a mother's milk of sorts that sort of bring in that part of a, a civic uh, bring that contribution into one's individual development. I, absolutely. It's like you have to, you know, life is not about a set of numbers. Uh, life is not about, you know, Instagram fame. <laughs> life is about exploring the human element and celebrating what the definition of excellence in human achievement can actually be. And the arts provide the emotional, I can't pull the word up, but it, if people don't have a sense of self to understand and identify what brings them peace and joy, then they're only going to have their work and the measure of what other people think of them to live with. And that's why we need to educate our children with the arts in mind. It is the only thing that can teach critical thinking. The rest is strategy. Strategy will only get you so far, you know, and it's gotten us to where we are in our society today. So look around. Well, thank you for that. And so off to your next work at the Kotzbahn Cultural Park in Tivoli. Congratulations on your life's work at ABT and best wishes on all your future pursuits. Thank you so much for your time today, Kevin McKenzie. Thank Good you. luck. All best. It was wonderful to be with you. Thank you. My guest was Kevin McKenzie, Artistic Director of American Ballet Theater, stepping down at the end of this 30 years career there. American Ballet Theater's Nutcracker will continue to be performed at Sagerstrom Hall now until December 18th. The details are available at scfta.org.